0: Let's face it, whether you're hiring or trying to find work today, the process has become tougher than ever. Between ghost listings, AI-powered applicant tracking systems, chat GPT-written cover letters, and wild employment scams, how do you know if your resume, your application, or your job posting is even being seen by an actual human? That's why we've relaunched our job board to help you find your next opportunity. And if you're a company that's hiring right now, Then we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of podcast listeners for just $99. Get started with us and expand your job search or your recruiting efforts today. RevisionPath.com forward slash jobs.
1: You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll
0: learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is supported by the School of Visual Arts BFA Design and BFA Advertising programs. SVA values originality and critical thinking while providing students an immersive learning experience with their faculty of industry experts. The BFA Design program empowers students with the tools and opportunities to shape the future of design, and the BFA Advertising program equips students with the skills in media and new tech needed to excel in the advertising industry. Learn more at sva.edu, and enroll today to join one of the most influential artistic communities in the world. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing Black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate, and click the donate button there to make a one time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now, for this week's interview, I'm talking with Anwan Simmons. Anwan is a veteran in the tech field with over 25 years of experience. Currently, he's a staff engineering manager at GitHub, and he's based out of Houston, Texas. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do.
1: I'm Anwan Simmons, and I am a staff engineering manager at GitHub.
0: So how has this year been going for you? Any highlights?
1: Yes. I think one of the biggest highlights of this year is that my oldest son, and I have three children, and my oldest went to college. So we launched our first baby into university, <laughs> and we literally, a few days ago, dropped them off at the University of Texas at Austin where he is an incoming freshman and we moved him into his dorm and we gave him hugs and we tried to not cry. (laughs) And we got him installed in Jester West in his dorm and we drove home without him. And it was a very fulfilling experience. It was a little bittersweet, but we're super proud of him. And that has been a big highlight because a lot of this year was getting ready for that moment.
0: Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. I love how you say installed like you was software like we installed. Him. <laughs> <laughs> I am a tech person. <laughs> so outside of that, like, do you have any sort of goals or accomplishments that you want to try to do before the year ends?
1: Yes, I think one of the biggest goals that we had as a family, I mentioned that I have three children, my wife and I, we've been married for twenty one years, and we do, as you might expect, a lot of family things, right? And so we wanted to have a really reflective and relaxing and connecting summer. Because again, my oldest son was going to college. My middle child, a son is starting his senior year. They just started a few weeks ago. Then my daughter is a sophomore, right? So that kind of gives you an idea of their ages. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we did this summer, and we went back and forth on like, do we want to do something elaborate? Do we want to do something elaborate, right? Do we want to go to like Legos, Nigeria, or go to Amsterdam or whatever. And then we thought, no, no, let's just kind of tone it back. And so we did just a very simple family vacation where we went to Washington, DC for a few days. And then we took this Amtrak express train from Washington, DC to New York City. And we spent time there because none of my kids had been to New York City. And, you know, we did all the touristy things we went to. Statue of Liberty. We went to the Empire State Building. We did all these things and it was just a nice family time. And so that was a major thing that we did this summer. And that may sound a little bit boring, but like it was a delightful little small vacation. My middle son went to a summer program at UT because he's interested in business, like his older brother. And my daughter is on the dance team in high school. So she did a lot of things with her dance troupe. And so this was very much a family summer. So I would say, that on a personal level, that was the biggest highlight of this year. I would say that the other big highlight is that at work, I promote a black woman and an Indian woman at work. And that was something that is truly gratifying. not just because of their ethnicity. They were ready to go. They very much very well deserved the promo. But I promote a lot of people in my career, and just as a person of color. It was really great to be someone who could come alongside them as a manager, help them honestly overcome some of the imposter syndrome that I detected in them, and then do the work to make sure that the organization could identify and respect their accomplishments and what they were bringing to the team that, hey, these people are ready for promo. They're already doing their work and to get that done. And so out of all the many people I promoted over my long career, and I've been doing this for over 25 years, That was very gratifying.
0: Wow. I mean, from the family end, I think a nice, relaxing family vacation is definitely a great accomplishment, especially after the past, (laughs) you know, two or three years with the pandemic, like even just being able to get out and do things tourist wise is great. So that's good. And also you got to spend some time with your son before he went off to college. Like that's a memory that I'm sure he'll take with him, you know, so that's great. Absolutely. Yeah. And since you mentioned work, you know, let's pivot to talking about what you're doing at GitHub, where you work as a staff engineering manager. Tell me more about that.
1: Sure. So the team that I'm responsible for supporting is called GitHub Sponsors. And GitHub Sponsors is a program that GitHub started, I mean, really a few years ago, that is meant to allow open source maintainers to receive financial support, right? So open source maintainers can receive financial support through GitHub sponsors. And the reason that GitHub came up with this program is because GitHub, one, loves open source, but also we know that so many of the programs and the apps and the websites and the applications that run the world run on open source. There are so many dependencies that people have all these open source projects that make these projects, that make these applications work. And often the people who maintain those projects, they do it for free. (laughs) They do it because they love the code or they want it to solve a problem. And often they work an eight or nine hour at their day job, and then they labor at night working on open source maintaining these projects that really transform the world. And we wanted, or GitHub wanted, to make the open source ecosystem sustainable so that these people who are really doing free labor can find reward for their work, but also ideally do it full-time. And through GitHub sponsors, I've heard stories of open-source maintainers who were able to quit their day job and do their work full-time, or perhaps they didn't quit, but they were able to bring on a partner to help make the project better. And so that's the team that I'm responsible for, the seven engineers on that team. I work very close with the product manager. And so that is what I do at GitHub.
0: Nice. Is that a, a new program or is that something GitHub has had for a while?
1: We had it for a while. We've had it for about three years. It's been in beta for most of its time, right? The time that it's been available. But we recently took a GA in April of this year.
0: Nice. Very nice. What does your like typical day look like? I'm imagining you're probably working remotely or are you going into an office? Like, What does your typical day look like?
1: GitHub is fully remote. It's been fully remote for a long time, way before the pandemic. And so my day starts with me waking up, walking maybe 20 paces into my office and then <laughs> I am at work. And so it's funny, I tell people that like, and I worked at Help Scout before GitHub and I've had remote work as the way that I worked for several years now. And I tell people it would take a lot for me to have to work in an office. And I know <laughs> one of my colleagues said that they basically put like a hundred thousand dollars figure on working from home, right? That like, if you had an opportunity that you wanted to take, it would have to be like 100K over what you're making now if it requires you to go into an office. And so, yeah, I wake up, I walk into my office, I put some beans into my coffee machine, I make my coffee, I get my water because I got to stay hydrated. And then I log on to my GitHub issue laptop. And then the first thing that I do, which is I think not very unusual, is that I check Slack and see what happened while I was sleeping. Where are the things that are going on with the GitHub? What's happening with my team? I also like check email. And one of the things that I think people may not know is that GitHub uses GitHub. We use GitHub for our daily work. And so we do what's called dog fooding, right? We use the tools that we build every single day. And so one of the things that I do with checking Slack and checking my GitHub Gmail account is going to GitHub and looking at all of the notifications about all the issues that my team is working on, or I'll check on the pull requests. We call them PRs, or I'll go into discussions. And so I use GitHub every day because at GitHub, we use what we build for our daily
0: work. Back when I worked at Glitch, it was very much the same way. Like any sort of project that we did, it was adamant that we used Glitch for the project. Like it was never anything like, oh, let's think about some third-party whatever. Anything we did had to sort of work within Glitch. So I'm certainly familiar with like that concept of dogfooding. I'm curious though, like because of that, and you mentioned before, this is one thing through GitHub sponsors where you're supporting other open source projects and things like that. Developers worldwide use GitHub for their work. What kind of problems internally like is GitHub focused on solving?
1: Yes, dogfooding lets you use the stuff that you build because you'll see things, right, that customers are are running into and I mean, you know, I've gone in and said, hey, the button on this form seems a little bit off center. And yeah, I can open up an issue and then send it to the team that owns that page and then they can fix it. And so, you know, a lot of the reason that we use GitHub at GitHub is to really make it better. Right. So that's one thing. That's one problem that we're working on, because while GitHub has been around for a long time, it's not a perfect product. We know that, but we're dedicated to making it a little more perfect Every single day, right? One of the other big challenges that we're working on, our big problem is what we call developer experience. The developer experience is what developers go through while they're building code. And so we want to make the development experience one where you feel that the tools that you use don't get into your way and that you're able to do the best work of your day every day based on the tool set, right? So a lot of that is based on how we design GitHub and GitHub's always changing. If you use GitHub, you know about GitHub. Like I said, pull requests, you know about issues, you know about the other parts of GitHub. And we're very much invested. There are entire teams dedicated to those functions that I just mentioned. But one of the biggest things about the developer experience is CoPilot. And I'm sure we're going to talk about this quite a bit, but CoPilot is our AI tool. That is your artificial intelligence pair programmer. It's like having the best engineer that you ever heard of working with you to help your code become better. So Copilot is a key part of what we're doing in AI at GitHub. It's transformational. I think that we're doing some amazing work. Again, we'll probably talk about that some more later. One of the other tools that I think is super cool is called Code Spaces, which is basically your developer environment in the cloud, where you can log in. And instead of having to do what I did when I started developing 25 years ago, and installing all these tools and install my IDE and my dependencies, install my database, install all these helper applications. You just log in to basically browse experience. It's all there. You can start coding. And so we want to remove obstacles between the idea and the implementation and Copilot and Code Spaces and just GitHub itself are really some of the things that we're working on to make that true.
0: Well, yeah, let's actually go into talking about AI. You know, I mentioned to you before we we started recording that it's been sort of a running theme on this show for the past two years now, like everyone that we've had on. In some capacity, I ask them about, you know, how is this cutting-edge tech, you know, AI, machine learning, generative AI, etc. how is that sort of affecting the work that you do or what does it mean for the work that you do? So how do you use this sort of cutting-edge tech at GitHub. You mentioned Copilot, but are there other sorts of like programs or initiatives that you all are working on?
1: So to go back to my team, right, GitHub sponsors. So uh, GitHub is a Ruby on Rails application, right? So at the end of the day, that is what runs GitHub. GitHub, for the most part, runs on Ruby and Rails. And so we do a few things, right? We very much contribute to new versions of Ruby and Rails, right? We also upgrade our code, right? So we have... Entire teams are dedicated to that. So I would say Ruby and Rails as tools are really big at GitHub. Uh, We also use other tool sets like React, right? Which is a popular front-end framework for building programs. I mean, there's a whole host of programs and languages that we use at GitHub. We also obviously host um, a lot of the code for open source frameworks, right? Like React and Vue and Laravel. And so GitHub not only uses a lot of cutting-edge technology, we are also the home for a lot of the cutting-edge technology that are used today. And so we take that responsibility very seriously. So we always want to make sure that we're available, that we're secure. And so uh, working on those functions, right? So it's not just having a place or having a repository for your code, but we also want to make sure that we're highly available, we're highly secure, that all those things are by default and I want to spend a little bit of time putting maybe a finer pin on that. Mm -hmm. No tool is useful if you can't get to it. (laughs) And no tool is useful if it will expose your sensitive information. And so security and availability are like super core concerns at GitHub. And I want to make sure that it's clear that we spend a massive amount of tools, a massive amount of people, and a massive amount of just thought space all of those subjects. And so that's really something that is really important to make sure that we understand. We also spend a lot of time on privacy because, again, a lot of personal information resides on GitHub. And so we do a lot of work around that too. So it's more than just code. Code is obviously a core concept, but it's all those things around code that we spend a lot of time thinking about and solving for.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned availability because, like you said, GitHub hosts a lot of code for other projects. And I've seen on the web, like when GitHub goes down, that people freak out, like other <laughs> services, because you never really know, you know, as a, as a user, what's connected behind the scenes. So like if there's a GitHub outage for some reason, then all of a sudden that's affecting other websites and other tools that you use. It sort of is all like chained together in some way. So I'm glad you mentioned that about availability. I'm just remembering from my time being at Glitch, how whenever the tool went down, It was always a very frantic time at the company because it's like, Oh no, the, the tools down. We're hearing about it from people. How do we fix it? How do we get things back up and running? I mean, that's, I feel like, especially now because so many things are connected under just a handful of services like, you know, GitHub, AWS, et cetera. When things happen there, it's a ripple effect throughout the web about other things that get affected. So I'm glad you mentioned availability as being like a big thing that you work on.
1: Totally. And, you know, GitHub, I mean, again, it's a great platform. It's been around for a long time, but like it is a tool that runs on servers, right? There are data centers that where GitHub is hosted. There are uh, cloud providers. I mean, it is like any other system made by humans. And that means that you sometimes run into errors. And so while we work at this, like any other service, things happen. There could be a variety of reasons why something goes down. And one of the cool things about GitHub is that if there is an incident, right, where, hey, things are running slow, the system's not available, you know, again, we want this to be a very rare occurrence, but hey, it happens. I can hop into a chat on Slack and just follow along what's happening. We very much value transparency. And one of the super cool things about GitHub is that those incidents, again, we want them to be rare, are observable to anyone who's a hubber, right? We call ourselves hubbers if you work at GitHub. And so that kind of transparency... Is a powerful feature of the company and really speaks to how we do want to embrace the open source model. And again, there are limits to be honest, but, and there are reasonable limits. But for the most part, everything should be transparent, everything should be visible. And that's really an open source principle that we hold very
0: dearly. Now, you know, you mentioned Copilot and Copilot is like this tool that is used to sort of, I guess, like help you code, like it helps with suggestions with code and things like that. Is that something that's used internally or is that more of just a, like a customer-facing product?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's an internal tool. To give maybe a couple examples of Copilot, Copilot integrates with popular IDs like BS code. And so once you have Copilot installed, you can say, hey, Copilot, create a component or hey, Copilot, add test. So you can literally, with your voice, work with Copilot or you can add a comment to your code and describe what you're doing. And then Copilot will put in, I mean, often, if not the scaffolding what, for what you're trying to do, it'll actually give you a solution, right? And so what Copilot is meant to do is to, like I said before, remove a lot of those friction points in the experience that developers go through. And instead of having to hop on Stack Overflow or Google Solution, like all that's built into the IDE, the development environment that you're using. But it's smarter than Stack Overflow, right? It's smarter than just doing random Google searches. It understands context and it's able to understand based on what you're typing, what you want to do. So again, the analogy that I tend to use is imagine that you're sitting next to like the smallest developer that you've ever known. Mm -hmm. And then they're pair programming with you, right? You have hands on keyboard, you have your hand on the mouse, but they're saying, oh, try this or Are always almost like that, you know, super smart pair programmer could immediately just paste code snippets into your IDE uh, to help you along. Now, again, it's not going to replace the human, right? It is very much meant to be something that instead of replacing human developers, Mm -hmm. it's meant to be something that works with human developers. And like that's the power of Copilot. I know that a lot of people are wondering will AI replace developers? Will AI make software engineering a non viable? career option for people and i think like that's not happening at all and i mean that may happen but it won't be while i'm alive in <laughs> a co-pilot and and i think ai in general is really meant to be what can humans and ai do together and not what can ai replace what humans are doing right now
0: yeah I mean, the tool is called Copilot, not Autopilot. So clearly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Like it's meant to be used, you know, sort of in conjunction with what humans are doing. I mean, the code, the AI is not necessarily running itself in terms of prompts and things like that. Like you still have to have a person that's sort of checking that. So it sounds like what Copilot kind of helps you do is just evolve your development in terms of, you know, I would imagine productivity, like helping you out with maybe code snippets or things like that. I mean, I'm not a developer. I have, like, done some front-end development, like, back in the day. You don't remember everything. So you do end up looking stuff up, you know, and that's not to say that a great developer never has to look those things up, but at least what it sounds like Copilot does is it helps put those resources a bit closer to you to make that happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, the analogy that I use... This used to be a revolutionary thing, but like spell check and grammar check, right? We all use word processors Mm -hmm. where there's Microsoft Word, Google Docs, where if you mistype a word, it'll put a little red squiggly line under the word. Or if you do something that's maybe like where the grammar is off, it'll like highlight that. You can click it. It'll give you a suggestion. Oh, the spelling, try this spelling or try this grammatical. Construction and like that hasn't replaced editors, right? That hasn't replaced writers. I right. mean, people still have jobs as editors, as copywriters, all that stuff. But it just makes everyone's work a little bit more right, correct with when it comes to spelling or mm-hmm. to grammar. So it doesn't replace what the need for people to actually write stuff, but it does harmonize and make everyone's writing a little bit better. And I think that just like spell check and grammar check have done for writing. And we've used these for years and they haven't destroyed entire careers. Copilot as an AI pair programming tool, is just that it makes your work a little bit faster. It removes really a lot of the friction of you having to you know, go over to a web browser and go to Stack Overflow or to Google, how do I do this? Retro-edit? How do I do this? Like, what's the format for this again? Mm-hmm. And so by doing that, you really increase the speed of development by removing friction. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about Copilot.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just like when, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that spell check kind of analogy because like when ChatGPT really came about and a lot of educators are really concerned about whether or not, oh, is this going to replace, you know, students writing and things like that. The language model is trained off of a lot of different data, but just because it's trained off that data doesn't mean that you're getting a perfect output. I've used ChatGPT before and yet yeah, it gives you information whether or not that information is wholly correct is up to the human to discern. Now you can take exactly. it, you know, just like on its face, like, yes, this is exactly what it is because AI told me that's the case, but you don't know if that's actually like cognizant code that you're actually using. If you're using like Copilot or something like that, you still have to really sort of do that human check to make sure this is something that actually works. Like just because the AI gave that to you doesn't necessarily mean that it's something that might work for the particular project that you're on or anything like that. So I see what you're saying about that human element is never going to go away because just because the AI can give you the information that you need, you still need to check to make sure it works for your particular situation.
1: Absolutely.
0: Now let's kind of, you know, pivot here a little bit. We've talked a lot about your work at GitHub. So let's learn more about you. Of course, you've mentioned your family, which we'll, we'll talk about a bit later, but tell me more about you. I know you're in Houston right now. Is that where you're from originally?
1: No, I am from a small city called Wichita Falls, Texas, not Wichita, Kansas, which people often confuse the two. And that's where I grew up. That's where I went to middle school. That's where I went to high school. After graduating from UT Austin, I moved to Houston in 1997, and I've been in Houston ever since. That's again, over like 25 years. So I'm a Houstonian now. So I'm a Houstonian by tenure, not by birth.
0: That's like me with Atlanta. Like you mentioned that when we we started recording, you're like, you've been in Atlanta (laughs) for a long time. I'm like, yeah, I've been here since 99. I came for college and I'm like a, yeah, Atlantan by tenure, certainly not by, by birth. And like, I've seen how the city has changed so much since I, you know, first came here. So I get exactly, exactly what you're saying. Let's go back to your time at UT Austin. You, you majored in electrical engineering. Were you first interested in tech once you got to UT Austin or did you kind of have this sort of want to work in tech, you know, prior to that?
1: I'm going to tell you a story about why representation matters. So when I was in junior high, there was a show called Star Trek. I'm sure most people have heard about them. I find it most people like Star Wars now for these days. Like whenever I mention science fiction, they, type, they say Star Wars, not Star Trek, but that's another podcast. <laughs> and like, and you know, I mean, I've been a nerd all my life. I mean, I was into anime way before it was called cool. talking like 1995. Fist of the North Star, Akira anime. I'm I'm OG Japanimation right here, (laughs) and so I was in the sci-fi. I read Tolkien, Lord of the Rings way before the movie, so like that was me. I played Dungeons and Dragons. I was that black kid with the weird people in the corner playing Dungeons and Dragons. So like that was my vibe circa like 1985. Just to be honest with you. So, but Star Trek, you know, you had the initial series of like Kirk and Spock and all that. But then around my junior high school years. There was Trek: The Next Generation, and you had Captain Picard, who was obviously the captain of the Enterprise, but LeVar Burton played Jordy LaForge. And the first season, he wasn't in this position, but he became the chief engineer of the Enterprise for basically seasons two through seven. And so he was the key person in charge of all the technology on the Enterprise during this time. And so like I'm in junior high, then going to high school while the seasons are going on. And like this wasn't the only reason, but seeing Lavar Burton, a black man play a black engineer in charge of like this amazing technology was inspirational right representation matters and that very much was like part of the impetus for me seeing myself as an engineer and I was always good at method science I mean I was like the, I was that kid that loved trigonometry I loved calculus I loved physics and so that was what really helped guide my path to UT. And taking electrical engineering with all the circuit analysis and the math, like differential equations and vector calculus, that helped me see that that was possible. And so I became an engineer. And while you know, like I never served on a starship, I loved working in technology for my entire career. And that was a big part of my story, LeVar Burton, and seeing a Black man running tech uh, in sci-fi.
0: Now, you ended up going to UT Austin, kind of, and we sort of touched on this a little bit before, like right around those prime, a different world years. I think a different world ended in what, 90, 92, I think it ended.
1: That sounds about right. Yeah.
0: And and you started at UT Austin in what, 93?
1: I started in 1993. You got
0: it right. Yeah. Tell me what your time was like there.
1: Yeah. I mean, just to kind of put another finer point on that, I, mean, I grew up with Dwayne Whitley Gilbert, the whole gig on a different world. And like, again, representation matters. I mean, I was a nerd, but I was also a lover of black culture, right? I was a blur. I think we call ourselves blurs now, black nerds. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, again, another area of representation was seeing these amazing black people who were casted on a show about black kids in college. And like, that really helped me further solidify that I wanted to be a black kid in college and have that experience. And so- Yeah, I got to UT in 1993. I actually did a summer program called Preview. This was a program designed to give Black students who, for a variety of reasons, would sometimes struggle with the leap from high school to college. In many ways, they may have been the first people in their families to go to college. And there's all these things about UT. I mean, I always tell people, the year that my mother was born in 1947, UT did not admit Black students, right? So she was born into a world where black students could not go to UT, right? So this is not ancient history. This is like within living memory where black people could not go to UT. And so Preview was meant to be a six week program. So before classes started freshman year in that like September, we got to UT in like July. We lived in dorms. We had events. We learned about college life. And like that was an amazing program. And I will always owe a great attitude to the people who came up with Preview. So after Preview, yeah, I started my time going to classes. I had a very hard degree, so I, I spent a lot of time studying. But UT is a huge campus. We're talking 50,000 students. Wow. But when Black people are like maybe roughly 6 or 7% of 50,000, that's a lot of Black people. And so I was able to find you know Black people who I could fellowship with, there's a lounge in Jester West, which is like the kind of the main dorm campus called the Mecca Mex Lounge, right? Which was called the Mecca Lounge back then. I think it's still called that now. And that was a place where black people went. We went there to play dominoes, play spades. If you were willing to risk your life, we would play Taboo, which would be <laughs> a very, <laughs> I've seen some people almost get into a fun of her Taboo. But like, I very much was able to marry. My academic experience and grow as a college student with the very rigorous courses that I took as an engineering student. I was able to marry that with the black experience. I then mean, went to a black church that I found in Austin called St. James. And so my academic experience at UT was really quite special, quite amazing because I think we were at a time where like that generation of black students who saw a different world in high school mm-hmm. came together and it was just really amazing. Now, I will say that this is also the time when Affirmative Action was being challenged in Texas, right? There was something called the Hotwood decision. And I was the person who, before that decision was handed down, would protest. I mean, the newspaper of UT is called the Daily Texan. And there are letters that I wrote. You can write letters to the editor. Just anyone can write them if you're a student. I wrote letters that you can find online to the Daily Texan about Affirmative Action and about Hotwood. And why that decision was really wrong and would cause harm. And I, was, I took part in marches and protests about it. So my college career also involved not only growing as a Black person and enjoying the Black experience, it was my first experience engaging in Black protests and really advocating for Black people as a Black person. So like that was all wrapped around my experience at UT.
0: Wow. I mean, it sounds like your whole time there was really transformative.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally.
0: Now, after you graduated, you ended up working for Accenture, and you were at Accenture for a long time. You were there for a little over 10 years. Like tell me about that because I think for people graduating from college, now working any place for 10 years after that almost feels like a fairy tale. Like <laughs> like, like what was your time like there and what made you want to go to Accenture?
1: I should also mention that I, my, my wife, my now wife was going to, she hears this. I met my wife at UT, right? That's a big part of our story. We did not get married in college because, uh, you know, we were young, but that came later, but like to answer your question. So like when I was in my junior year, my, my senior year at UT, you know, you're going into the job search field. And one of the things that I learned about myself at UT is I love technology. I love the ones and zeros. I love code. I love software. And all those things are true. But I also really like people. Maurice, I'm not sure we talk about like my my public speaking career. So I've spoken on you know, stages all around the world. And in fact, I'm going to be in Copenhagen, Denmark next week to give a talk. Right. So I very much engage. Hundreds of people on stage. I am not bothered by that at all, mm-hmm. but I'm a classical introvert. I am a classical introvert. Most people don't believe me because like I'm a manager. I live with people all day long. I speak in front of huge crowds, but I'm a very big introvert. So I went to UT as that kind of shy, introverted kid, but like being involved in what I just described, the black experience that that really drew me out of my shell. And I realized that like I really like people. I felt that like one of the biggest things that I like about people is helping people. And so when I was looking at jobs to do, like there were like the regular software companies, the like the the people that made circuits like Intel and AMD. And then there were software companies that I was looking at and, and I got offers from those places. But one of the things I loved about Anderson Consulting, which was the name of Accenture before the name change happened, one thing I liked about the consulting model is that you could dive deep into the technology, but you could also dive into the people as well because Anderson Consulting very much was hiring engineers, not just business majors, but engineers to join their technology practice because they felt that you really get beauty when you can marry technology and people. And so my transformation from this shy, introverted kid, when I first went to UT, becoming someone who really likes people, very much informed, my desire to go into consulting and to go to Accenture. And then one of the things that I really learned to talk a little bit about my early years there was all around consulting is a great way to learn a lot of things very quickly. I learned in the first two years of Accenture things I probably would have taken me three or four years to learn somewhere else because you're donating these huge projects. You're learning how to work with clients, right? People who are paying you to be there to communicate the value of the project, to guide the project, And that was really my first few years of working at Accenture. I learned how to be a better software developer. I learned how to work on teams. I learned how to be managed by a manager. And that was really very much the early part of my Accenture experience. I was in the Houston office and there was a very vibrant Black community of Black people who worked at Accenture Anderson at that time. And that also furthered the connections that I made with my fellow Black people in tech and some of the people I went to UT with went to Accenture as well. And so my experience at Accenture was almost in many ways like the next version of what I went through in college, right? Deepening my technology bona fides and also deepening my identity as a Black person and being one of the Black culture, right? All those things really wove together. And I was there for a long time. I mean, let me pause here and say if you want to know more. like I, I, That's kind of the first, let's say, zero to five years mm-hmm. of my time at, at Accenture.
0: What were the other five like? That first
1: five years was learning to be really to be an employee in a large company. I eventually became a manager where I was not being managed. I was managing teams. And so that's a whole nother level of responsibility. One thing I should marry, and I mentioned that I met my wife at UT, is that I got married around year five, I guess around when I made a manager. like I became a manager at that point, my wife and I, who had... Honestly, lost touch a little bit after college. We reconnected. We got married, and so it was learning how to be married, which is a thing to be honest. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still learning how to be married. 20 uh, 21 years in, uh, Maurice. I was learning how to be married, learning how to be a manager, and shepherding people's careers. Learning how to be a technologist, and so that that last five year period was all that. But the reason that my time at Accenture lasted that long is that I was learning. I was learning new things about myself all the time. I was learning new things about technology because the technology field is always changing. I was growing, but I was also traveling a lot. And so my new wife, (laughs) who we eventually became a wife and my firstborn child, and then we got to child two, but I was saying, "Uh, you travel too much. (laughs) when they're babies, it's not like that big of a deal, but when they begin to know who you are and they begin to miss you when you're gone, when daddy has to go away, you know, Monday morning to fly wherever and then come back Friday night, I began to see that, wow, this travel thing is really becoming tough on my very young family. And so I began to think about what to do, right? Should I leave Accenture, go work for maybe a company where I don't have to travel as much, or do I? do something else. And so uh, my wife and I talked about it and we made a, a family decision that I would leave Accenture and get my MBA. And I said, I want to get my, my MBA. So that was like a two-year period that let me get off the road. It let me also get a credential that would help my career. Those were a lot of the bigger decisions about why I left Accenture at around the kind of 10-year mark and earned my uh,
0: business degree. So I'm I'm glad that you mentioned that sort of you leading up to getting your MBA, this was all, it sounds like each of these experiences just kind of like built upon each other. So it wasn't, oh, I felt like I was maybe edged out at work, so I needed to get more education. Like everything is kind of built upon each other in terms of your career up to this point. I'm curious, because you sort of alluded to this a bit beforehand, like, was this your plan to kind of structure your career in this way?
1: I wish I could say it was a play, but no, I, I fell into this, dude. I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, so like, yes, I mean, there are these themes in that this part of my life, right? Growing as a technologist, growing as a Black person. And yes, very much going from UT to Accenture to my MBA were growing those things as well. Because, like, a big part, like I said about Accenture, is you marry technology and people. And I would also say when you marry technology and business, that's powerful, right? So my undergraduate degree in EE, right? That kind of engineering undergrad was kind of getting the technology part in place and working for a technology practice in a big company. My technology credentials are very strong. I also wanted my business side to get stronger as well. So the, the MBA was a very nice kind of pair to that. And so these tracks of technology and business and blackness, I would say they all kind of built along very well, but it wasn't planned. I mean, I was, I think, a very smart person, married to a smart person, kind of trying to figure this stuff out. But I have to admit, luck played a factor, right? I was able to stay at Accenture when, I mean, we had a few rounds of layoffs during my time there. Their economy took a nosedive, right? I joined in 1997. A lot of people, if you're old enough to remember 2000, 2001 was kind of the dot, come crash. I survived that kept working. And so like luck went my way and I was able to have these themes progress by avoiding a lot of the disruptions that a lot of people go through. I mean, I was thinking through this. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Absolutely. So yes, I was a smart person, I think making smart decisions. And and I was lucky to be able to, like I said before, be married to a smart person. I mean, my, my wife is brilliant who was my partner in navigating this part of my life. But like I want the people hearing this to know one of the biggest things that are so important in your career and in life is luck. And I think that you can't plan luck, you can't schedule luck to appear, but what you can do is do your best to be prepared for when luck appears. And I think that I was very much, if anything, always prepared for luck to enter the chat (laughs) Mm -hmm. in my life and then use that luck as the stepping stone to the next opportunity.
0: And now since then, you've been pretty much working like nonstop, like looking at your LinkedIn. You've mostly worked as a technical program manager in sort of the pre-GitHub years. What lessons did you learn from those experiences that prepared you for what you do now?
1: Oh, so many experiences and so many lessons. What I would say is that And I should say, I did go back to consulting briefly at Deloitte after my business degree, because I graduated in 2008. (laughs) And then people, again, if you want to remember, there was a big recession in 2008, right? That lasted, you know, to like 2009. And so like, I got a couple offers when I was studying, when I was applying for jobs, when my business school time was coming to an end. But like the best offers, to be honest, came from big consulting companies, because I had Accenture on my resume. And so I went back briefly, but Soon after that, I left the kind of big company model, and I worked at startups. So look at my resume. You see these names that aren't nearly as recognizable as Accenture and Deloitte. You see Assemble. You see OnCenter Software. They're all technology companies, but they were really startups. And what I wanted to do, and again, this was not entirely planned, but what I wanted to do is... Experience the startup life because I had friends and colleagues who went to startups like way before I did. And I wanted to see what could I do in an environment where I didn't have massive resources, right? When you work for Deloitte and Accenture, you have billions of dollars backing the company. You have a massive number of resources. But when you go to a startup, right, you got. It's scrappy, right? Everyone wears a lot of hats. I'm having to lead the technology team, but I'm also having to understand the business. I need to support the product org. I need to support HR. I need to support recruiting. And these functions existed at the bigger companies, but they were way smaller at these startup companies. And so that helped me to understand. I really put my business degree at, to use because like, I was never going to be able to peer deeply into recruiting at Accenture, but I could at a startup. I could know the person running that function. I could really understand their day-to-day. I could understand how my technology function really interacted with their non-technology function and see how we can harmonize those things together. And so I would say that the lessons that I learned were all around really how do these functions interact with each other. And I also learned how to lead teams better, right? Because at Accenture and the way as a manager, like there's massive resources. When I became a manager at Accenture, I went to something called new manager school in Chicago, right? So they flew people to Chicago from Houston, really all over the world to learn how to be a manager, right? I didn't have that at the start. It was like, you better, here's your log on, uh, good luck. <laughs> I mean, and so like, I had to learn how to be a manager at that scale. And I think that that deepened what I bring to management today. And that is, right, people over process, people over technology. If the people are right, everything else really doesn't really matter, right? Because if you treat the people right, any technology, any process will do. However, if you don't treat people right, then no technology or process will save you. And like that is a core part of my management style. And it was really birthed in that sort of experience where I had to... Deeply integrate with this team because, you know, at Accenture, I'm leading teams, but I'm working on projects that have a beginning and an end. So I have a team for maybe four months and my next team might be six months and my next team might be a month. And then we're changing technology stacks. We're changing the business problems that we're solving, right? It's all changing. But at these startups, I'm with the same group of people, the same stack, the same product, the same customer base for a very long period of time. And so those lessons were all around how to be really a people manager. And I think that like I've gotten feedback from multiple people, people who work for me, people who are peers, people who are reported to that like my people management skills are very strong and those skills were very much honed and sharpened in the startup world. So like, that's a big lesson that I learned during that time. One of the other lessons that I learned (laughs) is you got to manage up, right? I mean, when I started my career, I was thinking, well, if the work's good, then people are going notice, right? I thought the work speaks for itself. I'm like, no, work doesn't have a mouth. It doesn't speak. You have to speak for the work. You have to make sure whether that's in your status report, that's in how you communicate to your supervisors, and that's how you really take advantage of opportunities to be in front of leadership. You have to market the work. And so marketing the work as an engineering leader was a huge lesson that can go into more maybe later, but like, it's very important that technology leaders are proficient in technology and process and people management, but you have to market the work because if you don't do that, the work's going to be invisible and invisible work does not get rewarded. Invisible work does not get promoted.
0: Wow. That I think is something that's super important for people to know, I think in general. And I mean, one, you know, that's true, you know, closed mouths don't get fed. Right. But also, exactly. just in terms of like how much is out there in terms of social media and user generated content and things like that, you might hope that the work will speak for you, but it can easily, very easily get drowned out by other things. So I, I like that, you exactly. know, you're saying that especially for, for engineering. Cause I've worked, I mean, I've been a creative on marketing teams at, you know, very tech heavy software companies, like, you know, tech startups and stuff. And yeah, getting the engineers to talk about any of the work they do is like pulling teeth. They don't want to talk about it. They feel like, oh, it's it's enough that I just did it. And it's like, no, we're trying to build stories around the work that you're doing so people know that you did it. Otherwise, people, I mean, that's not to say that, you know, people have had a, have like a negative opinion of tech. I think certainly people's opinions around technology and the tech industry have kind of changed a lot over the years, but- certainly being able to speak about the work that you've done and and to promote it is something that is super important. That's for developers, designers, whoever.
1: Exactly. And, and I really think that goes back to what we talked about with my experience going to UT as an introvert, this shy, quiet kid, and learning what you just said, closed mouths don't get fed. No matter how good look you may be as a brother, you know, the ladies like the Holland dude who has, you know, game, right? I mean, it's just little things like that. And so, yes, <laughs> All those things kind of continue through UT, through Accenture, through business school. You got to market yourself. So many opportunities that I've received is because I did interesting things in public. All along this timeline that we've been walking, you know, Twitter came on, Black Twitter came on, right? And by doing interesting things on Twitter, interesting things on social media, I got speaking opportunities. I've gotten job offers through just being interesting in public, right? Marketing yourself. And I think a lot of engineers, I mean, very much, this has been my experience working with a lot of engineers, we very much skew introvert. We very much skew quiet, re, very, usually very intelligent, but also very quiet. And you're exactly right, pulling things out of introverted engineers. And again, I don't want to stereotype, but it's an archetype that I've seen. And that for whatever makes an engineer, engineer, often what comes with it is just this kind of maybe quiet nature. And so I realized that that would hold me back that mm-hmm. in my career, being quiet would not redound to my benefit. And I needed to learn to speak and present not only in my work, but the work of my team. And that honestly has been a big accelerator to my career in technology.
0: What still keeps you interested in tech? I mean, you've been doing this now, like you said, for over 25 years, like what still drives you?
1: It's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> and that is technology is always changing. Like, you know, we didn't have co-pilot. We didn't have Kubernetes. We didn't have all these tools when I started my career over 25 years ago. And there were, I mean, the tools that I had back then would be considered like rocks and sticks today for the most part, right? It's very (laughs) primitive. I mean, not all of them, right? There's, I mean, a lot of those languages still exist, but there's so much, I don't know, they're like so much just sophistication, I guess is what I'm looking for. And the tools that we have now and so that ever changing landscape where like you have to stay on your toes, the cutting edge, the state of the art is always moving. That can be stressful because you have to keep upgrading yourself. You have to really reinvent yourself at least every two to three years in software development because things change that quickly. And so that can be stressful. It's so compelling because like there's so many cool things that would be hard to do now using the tools I had when I started my career, I mean, spinning up a development environment with the click, all the tools that we have right now, they're like higher order languages now that really didn't exist now. When I was, I mean, I learned COBOL and C and all these things early in my career. Uh, And like those languages are still used today, but like there are so many more like human-friendly languages like, like Python and other languages that, I mean, Ruby is a very, you know, very human, Compatible language, right? And so there's so much power in the accessibility to get into technology now that I've seen grow over my time. And so like that evolution and watching it, that keeps me interested. So like, that's one big thing is just the ever evolving nature of technology. And to be honest, I like people, right? I love helping people find capabilities and potential that they may not have found if I didn't work with them, right? And I've seen in people that I've managed over the years, I've helped to help debug imposter syndrome. I've helped to support, I've helped to mentor, I've helped to sponsor people. And then being able to be that force for what I hope is good is also compelling, right? So like, those are two things that have kept me intact and they keep me really, they add a, a bit of a bounce to my stuff every day uh, when I walk into my office.
0: hmm Now, you know, I I mentioned before how people's kind of opinion about tech has sort of changed over the years. For developers that are listening, I'm I'm pretty sure they might want to know the answer to this question. But like, what opportunities do you see out there now for developers? Like, are there certain skills they need to be learning to stay competitive? Like, I feel like you're like the sage on top of the mountain. Like From your perspective, (laughs) where do you see the opportunities for devs now?
1: the opportunity for devs is like, it has, I don't think ever been stronger because of a couple of things. One, there are so many engineers that I've worked for and work with, right? So as people who were like VPs or people who reported to me, who did not have the traditional, you know, computer science background, engineering background, the same background that that I came from, but who were so talented, so brilliant. Some of the smartest people who became my right hand as tech leads did not study computer science, right? I've had people who were speech pathologists. I've had people who worked in retail, worked in bookstores, but they went to a bootcamp, they learned how to code, they were great at it, and they became developers. So I think one of the biggest opportunities, and I say this to people, uh, people of color who I think, you know, are the primary audience for, for for this podcast and are the people who have very much been instrumental in my career, because we often don't have either the funds or the opportunities to go get computer science degrees from like the MITs, the Stanford's of the world. And I'm here to tell you that like, that's not really required. You can even be like a self-taught program. I've, I've even had people who taught themselves how to code, right? So I would say that the barrier to entry to get into software development has never been lower. There are all kinds of opportunities for people to come into this field and there are people like me who are waiting for you, who are here to welcome you, who are here to support you if you're willing to come in. And so I would say that like these tools are so powerful. And the things you need to know to be successful in software development or in technology in general have never been more available, have never been as powerful. So I would say like that's one thing that that you should know. The opportunity is so strong. I hope people feel that they can do it because if you're hearing my voice right now, then you can I would say the other thing that is a key part of the opportunity is, yes, there are technical aspects of the trade. Yes, there are things that you're going to have to learn. There are hard things that you're going to have to learn. But the number one trait that will keep you in this field, that will help you get in the field and stay, is patience and curiosity. That, that's it. It's not learning object-oriented programming or learning highly typed versus you know not typed Code languages or learning the difference between these different things or, you know, learning Kubernetes or all these things, but it's being patient and being curious. If you have those things, if you're willing to go through often the thing like this thing is a compiling and I don't know why, let me figure out, let me put in a debugger, let me figure out how to get it working, right? If you're able to just think, oh, I've always wanted to learn about this and then taking time to do that, those attributes would do so much for your career. So if you're willing to be patient, if you're willing to lead with curiosity, you can do well here. And I have to say that open source, right? GitHub very much loves open source. I run a program that's designed, you know, GitHub sponsors for open source. You can learn so much through open source software where you can, with almost no financial outlay, join a project, learn how it works, make contributions. There are so many programs that are basically designed to help people get into open source, where you can upgrade your skills, you can work with teams, you can become a value contributor to some of the most powerful software on the planet. So those are the things that I would let people know about this field. The barrier to entry is lower than you think. If you're willing to be patient, if you're willing to be curious, if you're willing to be involved in open source, and I can absolutely help you do that, please reach out, please come in. The industry needs you to be honest, and there are many people like me who are here to help.
0: Now, who have been some of the mentors or peers that have helped you out in your career? I mean, I, I feel like, you know, with everything you've mentioned, you've probably had a really strong community of support behind you, it sounds like.
1: I've been super lucky. I mean, so I was a resident assistant at UT. and I, I, I was an RA, that person who worked in the dorm who had maybe the bigger room, who was there to tell you, hey, turn your music down, or I've honestly walked And people who drank too much, helped them stumble to the dorm, even though they were underage, right? Like, I was that person, right? (laughs) But I I remember when I applied for the RA job, right? I'm like, I'm probably 19 years old, right? When I first became an RA, maybe 19, 20. Okay. And the person who interviewed me, like, I think they were the head of housing at UT. I remember her, if I closed my eyes, I can remember sitting in her office and she said, and one, you know, everyone who talked to you liked you. But- You seem a little bit quiet, right? You seem a little bit reserved. I this person was absolutely right. We want to give you this opportunity, but you're gonna have to lean into the people part of this because as an RA, you are responsible for residents. Residents are people. And like that was amazing. I mean, that little bit of advice getting that job helped propel this shy, introverted, nerdy kid into being someone who loves people, right? And I remember just kind of fast forwarding a little bit, like, you know, one of the managers. I worked for at a project at Accenture was very much, again, similar, started the speech, like, hey, we really like you. You're doing good work. And if I walk over to the place where, you know, you're working with your, your team, I can see it. But hey, you need to find ways to let other people know about what you're doing. And that that goes back to the work does not speak for itself. Like that manager very much was a mentor to me. And so I've had people all along the way give me nudges, give me advice, give me support. For things that most people can recognize if you're involved in Twitter or in technology, Scott Hanselman has been an amazing mentor of mine and a friend. He's a very well-known person at Microsoft. Kelsey Hightower, who recently retired from Google, is an amazing person, amazing friend. They've mentored me without knowing it, just by having conversations. I've met them at speaking gigs. I've met them at different places. And I would say that they have been mentors to me. Neha Batra, who is a VP at GitHub, who's very well-known on the speaker circuit in tech, has been a mentor of mine. She really was one of the people who helped me get into GitHub. I've learned so much from her about being a better people manager. I mean, I thought I knew what I was doing when I joined GitHub, but she helped me navigate all the special sauce at GitHub, uh, how to be even better people manager, a better technology leader. So I I want to make sure people who you can find own Twitter, you know, Scott Hounseman, Kelsey Hightower, Neha goes by Nerd Neha, I guess we're calling it X now, own X now. (laughs) And tons of people who, you know, you couldn't find if you looked for them, but at Accenture, at UT, at Deloitte, at startups have been all instrumental in my growth. They all saw the potential in me and they saw where I needed a little bit of a nudge to kind of get to the next level. They basically helped me receive that nudge. And so, I really try to pay it forward and a big part of what I do in my industry, whether that's the people who report to me at GitHub or other people within the company, whether it's being someone who is on the speaker circuit and I meet a lot of people out when I'm on the road. I look for people who like, oh, that person needs a little bit of a nudge. And that same nudge that people gave to me, I try to give people that nudge to just help them see something that they need to do, give them a map for how to do it, and then supporting them as they find their way to higher success.
0: Now you have three kids. You have just, you know, mentioned at the top of the episode. First one is now off in college. Second one's a senior in high school. Third one is a is a sophomore. Are they sort of interested in tech like you are? Like, do they want to follow in your footsteps,
1: Maurice? I did my best, but no. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you know, they're into their you know technology toys—the iPhones, their iPads, the Apple Watches, and all that, right? And you know, they play on their. Xbox and the PS. But when it comes to like a career technology, like helping to design an iPhone, helping to, you know, learning Swift to create apps on the iPhone. Mm-hmm. I tried, they all did computer science courses in high school. Like they learned JavaScript and they learned even just regular Java and all that. But I think that my wife is just more awesome than me. And my wife was a MIS major from the business school at UT for undergrad. And they all want to do business work. So I'm like, okay, all right. You know, hey, my, my wife is simply more compelling. And so my oldest son at UT is in the business school. My son, who's a senior, who you mentioned, is also looking for doing business. My daughter is kind of, she's my only hope. She's my last hope for maybe (laughs) getting an engineer out of the family. But I think she'll probably go to business as well. But yes, I would say that I have failed as a father to launch technologists. But I think that from my household will emerge some amazing business people. I'll take solace in that.
0: Well, you never know, you know. I mean, I think if there's one thing that people will kind of get from this interview is that you can kind of take control and take charge of your career at any given point in time, you know. So I think even just exactly. with the show in general, there's no like set path to get to where you want to go in terms of your end destination, over you know, based on what your values are, or things like that. So there could still be time. Don't count them out yet.
1: <laughs> that that's true. I should be I should be more hopeful. So yeah, you're right. I'll never give up on, on my kids and their future. And so you're exactly right. And like, you're exactly right with your career. I mean, one thread uh, that I've learned that I wish I learned earlier is that you know, your career is not something that happens to you, right? You have agency, you have volition, and then you can take that next step, right? And so yeah, there may be people who support you. Hopefully the people give you the same budgets that I received, mm-hmm. but you also can study the game and learn how to play it better. And that's something that I've been lucky to do.
0: Now, where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what kind of work do you want to be doing?
1: That is something I've been thinking about a lot. So, like, if you think about, like, the just the career ladder, right? So, I've gone from individual contributor or, you know, IC, as we say, to manager or, you know, inch manager, to senior inch manager, to staff inch manager. And so, if you look at, like, most ladders, right, the next level would be, like, director, VP, Maybe going up to like maybe above that. So I think that that's probably where I want to go. I mean, like I said earlier, what's kept me in this industry is the way that it's always changing. There's always new toys, always new tools. And then there's also people, right? People to help and people that hopefully I can impact in a positive way. And so I, I would say like that's probably from a career perspective what I'm going to do with my professional career, which is go up that level. I've been honestly a little bit hesitant because I do think that the further I get away from the technology, from the people doing their work, the more I may be less motivated because I again, I love code. I love software. I love helping people build software. And as you go up toward VP, you're really far away. I mean, the the, the technology is like a speck on the horizon Mm -hmm. and then you're seeing politics and business and all that stuff. And while I can do that, I've been reluctant to do that, but like that's where you have impact, right? That's where you can impact not just a team, of like maybe 10 engineers, that's where you can impact a department of hundreds. And so I think from a professional standpoint, that's where I see myself going. Outside of work, I mean, I love public speaking. I have a lot of cool gigs for the rest of this year, but I think doing more of that, that's really what I love doing. And I also love writing. A fair amount of like, you know, technical writing that gets published. But if I could, if, if I could wave a magic wand and then kind of change the the percentages, I would make work maybe a smaller percent of what I spend doing Mm -hmm. and speaking and writing a bigger percentage of what I spend doing.
0: Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, you know, your speaking, your writing and everything? Where can they find that online?
1: One of the things that is really lucky about having a fairly unique first name is that you can find me at N1 at a lot of places, right? That's (laughs) A-N-J-U-A-N. N1Simmons.com is my website. That's kind of my home base. But you can find me on Twitter or, I'm sorry, X or threads or wherever you go. If you search for an A-N-J-U-A-N, you will probably find me. And please reach out. You can follow me. You can you know connect with me. Again, I've grown into a person who loves people. I'm always happy to do what I can to help people become better versions of, of themselves because my entire career has been becoming a better version of the person that I am. And so please reach out. I would love to connect and continue this conversation on other platforms.
0: Sounds good. And Juan Simmons, thank you so so much for coming on the show. I mean, one, thank you for just sharing your story about how you've gotten to where you are, but also for talking about the work that you're doing at GitHub. And like we, you know, like we sort of mentioned throughout this this interview, you know, the thing about your career is that, you know, you've really kind of owned it. You know what I'm saying? Like at any place where you've been, whether it's been just getting out of college or getting your MBA and then going to what the next step is. It sounds like you've really owned your career like every step of the way. And I hope that that's something that, you know, when people listen back to this, they'll get that they can do that for themselves as well.
1: Absolutely. Like I said, there was a fair amount of luck, but there was also a lot of intentionality. If you listen to this, you can be more intentional in your career. I hope that what you've gotten from this interview, that that that's very much possible. Let me give you your flowers, Maurice. I want to tell you before I leave, Revision Path matters. It's important. You've done an amazing job. Please keep doing it. You touch lives in ways that you will probably never, ever know. So I love what you're doing here. Please keep doing it. And I love being here. Thank you so much for giving me space on this podcast.
0: Oh, well, thank you. Oh, first of all, thank you so much for that. And thank you (laughs) for being here. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Big big thanks to Anwan Simmons and of course thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Anwan and his work through the links in the show notes at RevisionPath.com. RevisionPath is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the US, particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is supported by the School of Visual Arts, BFA Design, and BFA Advertising Programs. SVA values originality and critical thinking while providing students an immersive learning experience with their faculty of industry experts. The BFA Design Program empowers students with the tools and opportunities to shape the future of design. And the BFA Advertising Program equips students with the skills in media and new tech needed to excel in the advertising industry. Learn more at sva.edu and enroll today to join one of the most influential artistic communities in the world. Revision Path is brought to you by LUNCH, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please let us know. You can hit us up on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter slash X at Revision Path in both places. You could follow us on Spotify. You could follow us on Amazon Music. Uh, We're on Apple Podcasts as well. You can leave us a rating and a review there. We'd love to hear from you. Or you can leave us a voicemail message on our hotline at 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.